Incredible. Welcome to week 20 in our survey through the Old Testament. Uh, Today, we're looking at our second book of prophecy, the book of Hosea, which Hosea is listed as a minor prophet. Two weeks ago, Stephen Parkin taught through our first book of prophecy, the book of Isaiah, which was a major prophet. And just for people that don't know this, when we say minor prophet, major prophet, it's not because of the contribution they made. It's based on word count. Hosea was one of the shorter books. So that's why we call him one of the minor prophets. Now we have already studied through the works of the first prophet that God called. Who was that? Moses. Moses. He wrote the first five books of history we call the Pentateuch. And of course, we refer to them as historical narrative. But if you were here for the lesson on Deuteronomy a couple of months ago, I talked about the fact that Moses was named as a great prophet Because I mentioned that in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, just a couple of verses, Moses prophesied about the future of Israel. And if you look at Deuteronomy, all of chapter 32, nearly all of it, he's also speaking of future prophecy of Israel. And hopefully today, you'll catch how Hosea's words echo what Moses said about Israel's future long before Hosea was even born. So the question, what did Moses say would happen to Israel? And what was Hosea's message to them? Why do we even have the book of Hosea? And out of the list of all those prophets, what is it about Hosea that makes this book of prophecy distinct from all the other 15? What's unique about Hosea? That's, these are the things we're going to talk about today. And I'll tell you this, uh, in May of 2019, almost exactly four years ago, I got to teach through this book. And so when I drew Hosea again this year, I'm like, well, this will be a piece of cake. I've taught through this. I've got all the notes. It's going to take very little work. So I went camping for a couple days in southeast Missouri this week and thought this will be easy. But I'll tell you what, as I went back and began to examine this book of Hosea and began thinking about what I'm going to teach, I realized what so many people have said. You can never really fully plumb the depths of Scripture And praise God, he's shown me things, and over four years, I I understand it a little bit better, and I now see something that has excited me over and over and over as I teach through these lessons, how unified Scripture is, how each of these books of the Bible, they're not just random, disassociated stories cobbled together, they're all from the same ultimate author, and that blows me away, and so... Having said all that, I want to ask you to pray with me, and we'll ask the Lord to bless our lesson on this book of Hosea. Heavenly Father, thank you again for brothers and sisters in Christ who come, take an extra hour to learn more about your word. Lord, empower this lesson. Please bless the words that I'm about to teach. Uh, Even though I'm an undeserving sinner, Lord, Here I stand, and I pray that you uh, will bless this lesson to our understanding and that you would be glorified and understood. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. All right, so here's our outline for today's lesson. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the role of the prophets in general because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about them. In fact, our lesson on the prophets is going to continue through the rest of this spring and on through the summer. So it's really important, like Stephen Parkin said two weeks ago when he introduced Isaiah to us, it's important that we have a good understanding of exactly what they did and why God called them. 
And Stephen talked about the role of the prophets a couple weeks ago, but I want to reiterate it because we've had Easter since then, and I think uh, I'm going to expand even a little bit on it, and hopefully, again, this will help us as we move forward talking about the role of the prophets as we continue to study through the prophets. Secondly, as we usually do, we'll talk about the authorship and the date of Hosea. Number three, we'll give some very important historical background that should help us understand what's going on here in this book. And then finally, number four, we'll talk about the purpose of this book and the key themes. And it's broken down into three sections, as you can see here. There's only 14 chapters. But let's dive right in and talk once again about the role of the prophets. In my intro, just a couple of minutes ago, I mentioned that Moses was the first prophet called by God. And he spoke to Israel on God's behalf. And if you remember, he had to continually call God's people back to the law, to the commandments, telling them, uh, take care lest you forget. Don't forget, remember, obey the law. The reason Moses is considered a great prophet is not just because he talked about the future, which we'll get to, but because he did this. This was the primary role of the, the prophet was to be a preacher of the law. They were to call people back to the words that God had already revealed primarily through the prophet Moses. So contrary to popular belief, contrary to what I always was brought up to believe most of my life, the primary role of the prophets was to preach the law. Like Stephen taught us two weeks ago, this is called forth-telling, which is different from foretelling, talking about history in advance. Forth-telling, again, exhorting people to return to God's law, obey the commandments, and repent of their sin. And this is, if you're thinking about it, man, every city in Israel and Judah had a synagogue. There were priests. This is what the Levitical priests were supposed to be doing, right? If you think about it. According to what Moses had taught them, the Levitical priests, it was their responsibility to teach God's law and to exhort the parents to teach their kids and to obey it. But throughout history, I think most of you know this, the priests themselves often became corrupted. They turned away from God. They actually led the sheep. The sheep followed their, their um, shepherd into idolatry. So did the kings, the political leaders. And as men with incredible influence, these political leaders, the, the kings, and the spiritual leaders, the priests, they often ended up leading the people into the worship of idols, which we'll talk about. And so, the prophets were called. When the priests failed to do their job, when the kings failed to uphold righteousness and justice according to God's law, and so if you look really closely at the times in history, when the prophets were called to speak, it was nearly always when the Israelites were nearing self-destruction, which is why when they preached, they did so very directly, as you'll see in Hosea, and very forcefully. They did not mince words. Because, again, God's chosen people, his leaders, the kings, his teachers, the priests, failed to do their job and led the people into apostasy. So sometimes the prophets would preach on truth that had been slightly misunderstood. Most of the time, they were teaching on things that had been completely neglected. So again, this is the primary role of the prophets. Secondly, another function of the prophet was to serve as a watchman on the wall. This was another extremely important duty. We find evidence of this in the book that we're studying today. Hosea 9 verse 8 says, The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim. And Hosea calls the northern kingdom of Israel Ephraim sometimes. Sometimes. 
after the biggest tribe that lived there, Ephraim. There was another uh, prophet, Ezekiel. He was kind of a contemporary of Hosea. Like Hosea, Ezekiel also prophesied. I'm not going to steal the thunder of whoever's teaching Ezekiel, but he also was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he said this. He said that God's made him a watchman for the house of Israel. And God tells him, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. And in this chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he goes on to say that if a watchman sees an attack coming, and he blows the trumpet and warns the people, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet doesn't um, take cover and heed the warning, then if they fall prey to the enemy, well, then their blood is on their own head. But if the watchman sees an attack coming and he doesn't blow the horn so that people don't know of the impending doom, then if they fall to the attack, well, their blood is on the watchman's head because he didn't blow the trumpet. So the, the second important role of the prophets were to be a watchman on the wall for the people of Israel or Judah. And of course... There was a third very important role. Like Stephen told us, there was the role of foretelling. When God revealed to the prophets his plans for the future, most of it was Israel's future. And most people, like I said, this was what I assumed growing up, the prophet was always getting a special word from God, some new revelation, talking about history in advance. And you hear some people talk about the burden of the Lord. We have modern-day prophets, supposedly, who say, I have a burden from the Lord. But the burden of the Lord, primarily given to the Bible prophets, was to call the people back to God, back to his commandments, to obey. And as you're going to see in Hosea, they did serve as watchmen on the wall, warning of impending doom and certain judgment if they refused to heed the call. And also, as we'll see in Hosea, they did foretell exactly what would happen if they failed to obey. So, Now we have once again covered some important background on the role of the prophets. Now let's talk a little bit specifically about Hosea, this prophet. We really don't know a lot about this guy. There's just not a lot of information in the text about him. We don't know where he was born. We think he may have lived in the northern kingdom because he makes a few geographic references to cities there, but we just don't know for sure. Um, What we do know, um, hold on, I skipped ahead here. Yeah, he could have been from the northern kingdom. What we do know is the timing of his ministry. Because uh, if you open up your Bibles, if you have it, Hosea chapter 1 gives us an idea of the time frame. You can see in that opening verse, it tells us that Hosea spoke on God's behalf, and it names some kings there. There was one king in particular in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II. Uh, 1 Kings 14 said, Jeroboam II did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So that's one guy that was in in place there when Hosea prophesied. He also names four other kings that were southern kings. Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. So, based on this, a reasonable date of Hosea's ministry would be around 750 B.C. And he ministered to the northern kingdom for about two decades And the timing is actually important. Sometimes we just give this information because, oh, it's kind of interesting. But this is relevant. The timing is relevant because this is the last prophet that spoke on God's behalf to the nation of Israel. They were about to be destroyed. So that's why often 
Uh, Hosea is called the deathbed prophet of Israel because he was the last to prophesy to what was essentially a spiritually dead and decaying nation of Israel. So about 750 B.C., maybe about two decades. All right, let's talk a little bit more about some more historical background. If you remember your Bible history, uh, when Saul took the throne, he was the first king of Israel, and Israel was all 12 tribes unified, and then David took the throne. He also ruled over a unified Israel, and then Solomon. After Solomon left the throne and died, the kingdom divided into two. This is all recap. I think most of us understand this. This happened around 922 B.C., and the original kingdom split into two, and as you can see here, the northern kingdom became known as, well, the northern kingdom, or the house of Israel, or just Israel. That was ten tribes that split away. Like I said, Hosea sometimes called them Ephraim because of the biggest tribe that lived there. Or he sometimes called them by their capital city, Samaria. So as you read Hosea, just know he'll call them a number of different things, Israel, Samaria, Ephraim. And then, of course, they had the southern kingdom of Judah, which was made up of uh, Judah and Benjamin. Um, But just a few short years after this kingdom was split in two, like we see throughout history, it didn't take very long for the people to go apostate. It took maybe one or two generations. Okay. Um, so again, Hosea was called to prophesy to a dead and dying northern kingdom who was about to be punished if they refused to obey. Hosea warned them to repent over and over again, to turn back, but I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag what happens here. In 722 B.C., Once they refused to repent, the neighboring nation of Assyria invaded and conquered Israel and nearly destroyed them. And the vast majority of these ten northern tribes were scattered among the nations, and that's important to remember. So by the time of Hosea's ministry, this northern kingdom was so spiritually, so morally bankrupt, they really, you could say they didn't look or behave or act any different than any of the pagan nations that their forefather, Joshua, had driven out generations before. They were the same. They were not set apart and holy. They didn't worship the one true God. So Hosea was sent as God's last prophet. Again, he was called the deathbed prophet of Israel to prophesy to the house of Israel. He was sent into a, a not a very good situation. All right, let's move forward. Let's talk after having given all that background information about the purpose and key themes that we find in this book. The first major section, as you can see here, encompasses chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea. And you can entitle these first three chapters, uh, The Unfaithful Wife. This is where we begin to learn about the prophet Hosea, at least his family situation. Because it serves as a basis for most of God's message to Israel here through the prophet Isaiah. If you're going to understand the book of Hosea, you have to understand these first three chapters, the unfaithful wife. You'll understand why God has done what he's done here. You know that saying, extreme times call for extreme measures? What I just described in the background information uh, tells us this was an extreme time that called for an extreme measure. So God chose an extreme approach to get Israel's attention and to get them to understand why he's using the prophet Hosea and his family as an object lesson, specifically his relationship with his wife would become an illustration of God's love for Israel. And it's really important to understand this. 
Because a lot of people read Hosea, and there's another theme that we'll talk about. Um, but this is the key overarching theme of Hosea. This is really important, God's love for Israel. Uh, like I say, there's another important theme that kind of grabs your attention, and we remember it, uh, but it's crystal clear that God is communicating one thing in this book. So if you don't take away anything else from this lesson today, know that the, Ho- the book of Hosea uses this unique, extreme scenario of Hosea's marriage to demonstrate God's incredible mercy and grace and permanent love for his people Israel. So how does he do this? Well, Hosea would demonstrate love for his wife even though she would be extremely unfaithful to him. Most of of you have read this book, you know this. But this is just like God demonstrating his love for Israel. Even though Israel, his bride, has been very unfaithful to her bridegroom. That is the whole metaphor here in the book of Hosea. We can't overlook this. If you want to flip back to Hosea chapter 1 there. The first words that came to Hosea from God were very unusual. Let's look at verse 2, chapter 1. He's telling Hosea to marry a woman that would prove to be unfaithful, that may have already been unfaithful. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. By forsaking the Lord. So he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Isn't that odd? God instructs him to marry a woman by the name of Gomer, a wife of whoredom. Some of your versions might say a wife of harlotry. After she marries Hosea, she bears three children to him. Later, we find out that she will leave the marriage, go off, and return to her former wife, her former life rather, as a whore, as a harlot. And in spite of this, Hosea is going to seek after her with great love. It's incredible. Bring her back from a man who seems to have overtaken ownership of her. So this wife of whoredom or harlotry in verse 2 seems to indicate somewhat strongly that Gomer may have been a prostitute or a whore or harlot, whatever you want to call her, before she was even married to Hosea. So he would have married a known prostitute, and God is telling him to do this. Quite extreme. So this picture of prostitution or harlotry is used by Hosea throughout the book, and it serves as a recurrent thematic element to make a point. Now here's a little tip as we have dove dove into the first couple verses. Here's a little tip for reading through the book of Hosea. We'll see in chapter 1 that Hosea is giving... Uh, historical narrative about this marriage relationship. And sometimes he's speaking directly to the people of Israel, just giving commentary. But within his commentary, you'll see interspersed God speaking to Hosea, saying, tell him, tell them this. So you have to pay attention to that as you go through the book of Hosea. Sometimes it's Hosea speaking directly. Other times it's God telling him, say this. Now, if you want to skim down to... uh, Verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1. Just look through there real quick. This should be familiar to some of you who've read through this book. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. You'll see that Gomer would bear three children to Hosea. And they would serve as living witnesses to God's judgment of Israel by the names each of them were given. These names were prophetic. 
They were to show how God was about to deal with Israel. So along comes the first boy, and God says, you're going to name this one Jezreel. So his whole life, this is wild to think about. What's your name? My name is Jezreel. What does that mean? Um, It means to sow or like to scatter seed. Your name is to sow or scatter seed? Well, yeah, it's what God said is going to happen to Israel. It was an indication of what God was going to do to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, I want you to listen to the prophetic words I mentioned that Moses said so long ago about this nation of Israel. He said, in the future, when you take this promised land, and after you've lived in it for a while, if you become disobedient and turn away from the Lord, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Jezreel, to scatter or to sow. The second child that was born was called No Mercy. It was indicating that God was distancing himself from Israel, and he was going to allow them to suffer the consequences of their own actions in their leaving him. This wasn't because God's heart had changed for them. It's important to understand that. But because Israel, God's bride herself, had said, I don't want to be with him anymore. By this time, God's patience had run its course And he said, okay, you want to go? Fine, go. I'll have no mercy on you. Then there was a third child born. There's another boy. God tells Hosea, name him not my people. Some people think this was an indication that Hosea felt like this third boy was born by another man. Like, you know, she's a harlot. Maybe it's not his child. We don't know for sure, but could be. But we do know that his name meant that God was withdrawing his favor and protection from them. He's saying, you are no longer my people. You're not my people. Again, they're going to be on their own. They wanted to go. So here's these three kids. Jezreel, I'm going to scatter them. No mercy. I'm going to remove my blessing and protection from them for a time. They're not my people. Scathing indictment that these kids would live as a a memory of what was going to happen. Apparently, Gomer, I don't, we don't know when, after she started raising these kids, maybe she got tired of the sleepless nights and the diapers, who knows. But she got tired of being a mommy, obviously. She got tired of being married to this prophet of God. It wasn't fun for her. And so she leaves Hosea. She returns to her life of whoredom, um, has a good time, but eventually her life, of a good life, you could say, came to an end. And she eventually, apparently, was being auctioned off as a slave. Let's go to part four, the purpose and key themes of Hosea, Um, the second section, the unfaithful people. This is in chapters 4 through 13. Remember I said that Hosea's relationship with his wife would become an illustration of God's love for Israel, and that this is the key overarching theme of this book, God's love for Israel? Well, there is a second theme. It grabs people's attention. It's an unmistakable theme. You can't overlook it. It's Israel's infidelity. The house of Israel had forsaken her husband, had gone after other gods. This was essentially what you could call spiritual adultery. So listen to God as he speaks to the people through Hosea, condemning their idolatry with the very strong language of whoredom or harlotry. I'm just going to read a few select uh, verses from chapter 4. They shall play the whore. 
They have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom. Um, A spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. The men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. That was a real thing. Ephraim is joined to idols. They give themselves to whoring, on and on and on. Very direct language, very harsh in condemning their idolatry. Uh, From chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, Ephraim, you have played the whore. The spirit of whoredom is within them, God says through Hosea. Hosea 6.10, in the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Israel's whoredom is there. I'm sorry, if Ephraim's whoredom is there, Israel is defiled. And then in Hosea 9.1. I'm just picking a few out here. There's a lot of these. Israel, you have played the whore. You have loved a prostitute. Prostitutes wages. And as we read through the book of Hosea, we see multiple times Hosea telling Israel they have rebelled and sinned against a holy God. So many times here, Hosea is serving as a watchman on the wall, warning them of the punishment for their transgressions that is coming if they don't repent. And he talks about harlotry and whoredom many, many times. And of course, like I mentioned, when he's talking about harlotry, he's talking about idolatry. And I want to talk about this for a minute because I've talked about this before. He's not using the word idolatry in some sort of a modern definition. He's using the original biblical Definition. They were literally worshiping carved idols representative of other gods. And again, I want to say that this is not just something unique to the old Israel days. This is still repeated many times in the New Testament. We have 26 verses in the New Testament that mention the word idol or idols or idolatry. There are a couple of those that seem to indicate that um, any of our sins can be idolatry. However, 24 of those 26 verses, when they're talking about idolatry, they're talking directly about literal idols made by human hands or idols to whom food is being sacrificed. In Galatians 5, verse 19 through 21, idolatry is listed separate and distinct from all other sins. So the point is this, God commands his people to worship him alone and not to worship a carved image. And again, it's just as serious now as it was then. This is why we don't worship uh, saints or Mary or little statues. This is a big, big deal. And this book of Hosea is unique because it uses this extreme illustration of harlotry to communicate God's message. You don't really see this in the other prophets. No other prophet among all the prophets was told, hey, go marry a prostitute and then go redeem her after she's been unfaithful. It's very different, very extreme. But again, this motif, this central recurrent theme of harlotry was entirely appropriate for this relationship between God and Israel. Now I want you to remember that when God gave Israel the Mosaic Covenant, and we went through this in the book of Exodus, back at Mount Sinai, he was offering what seems to be kind of a proposal. Out of all the nations of the earth, He chose to be in relationship with them. He wanted them, of all nations, to be his beloved people. And yet, apparently, they weren't interested. Just like Hosea's wife, Gomer, they were hard-hearted and unrepentant. If you look at Hosea 5, verse 4, 
says this, Hosea 5, 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. And so their judgment, you could say, was sealed. If you look at chapters 8 and 9 and 10, all within this second section, they spell out God's sentencing for this guilty nation. He's had all these indictments, all this harlotry, all these charges of whoredom. is an indictment. Now he's giving them a sentencing in chapters 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 8, verse 8, this is interesting, Jezreel's name is going to come up again, which means to scatter. Hosea says, Hosea says Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the Gentiles. And in a few short years, after he's done prophesying, the neighboring nation of Assyria is going to sweep in, overwhelm the house of Israel. The vast majority of them are just going to be scattered. Great dispersion happens. They're lost to history. Their descendancy is kind of unknown, leaving Judah and Benjamin in the south. But even though there was no hope for this generation to whom Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Hosea is prophesying, that didn't mean, this is important, that didn't mean that God's promises to them were no longer valid or that he'd given up on loving them forever. So within this second section of uh, you know, the, the, the chapters 4 through 13, we have chapter 11. If you want to flip to chapter 11, it's amazing. Among this litany of scathing indictments of whoredom and harlotry, and then among the sentencing of what God was going to do to them, chapter 11 stands out. It's like a love letter from God to his bride Israel. It's very touching. You read that, it's just, wow, he loves them. So even though Hosea knew what God's judgment was and what was coming, he would told them, he also knew something that the other prophets knew which is that one day God would redeem his bride Israel in the future. Now we're going to come to part three. The closing chapter of this section, chapter 14, the Lord's promise to redeem his bride. And you'll see here in chapter 14, Hosea is going to speak directly to Israel in the first three verses. Like in verse 2, for example, he tells them, Return to the Lord. Then look down at verses 4 through 9. It's really important. This is the Lord himself addressing them, promising them that eventually he'll get over his anger with them. He's going to heal their apostasy. He's going to love them freely and that they will return to him. He reminds them, it is I who answer and look after you. So here we see the prophecy of God's future mercy towards Israel and her ultimate restoration in the future enjoyment of God's blessings. These are the words from chapter 14, verse 4 through 9, of a patient, loving God who keeps his eternal promises. If you look at the final verse of the book, we're, we're still left with a warning, very strong warning. It's still applicable to Israel. It was then, it is now. It's applicable to us as modern-day Gentiles so that we don't forget it says this in the final verse, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let, them, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. And as we journey through the books of prophecy over the rest of this year, you're going to see that the Old Testament is just a long, sad commentary 
about God's desire to be heard, well, he makes himself heard, but Israel's lack of uh, repentance, they refuse to listen. So like a jealous husband towards his wife, the book of Hosea teaches us that God is a jealous God. He is jealous towards his bride. And this is not a sinful jealousy like we humans exhibit. God's jealousy is a holy, righteous jealousy. He will tolerate no rivals. Even though Israel may stumble and fall, even though God has punished them and apparently still continues to be punishing them, one day, make no mistake about it, he will redeem them back to himself. And hopefully we all eagerly await the day when we see Israel reunited with the Lord and they get to return to the covenant blessings to the God of Israel, our Heavenly Father, and theirs. I want to reiterate again the key overarching theme so it doesn't get lost within all the indictments of harlotry, the foretelling of destruction, the promised scattering of the peoples. Listen to this key passage if you want to flip back to Hosea chapter 3. This is critical. Chapter 3, the first three verses. Hosea speaking, And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I be to you. So God instructed Hosea to go buy her back, reinstate her as his wife, which he did. Can you you even imagine this? How much love and forgiveness would this take if it were you and your wife went off and was a prostitute? How much love and forgiveness would it take And God commands him to do this. How much forbearance would it take on the part of a husband to go after his bride and redeem her? Again, this is an extremely difficult, difficult, crazy, extremely uh, extreme situation, heartbreaking. Hosea had to go through this in, in real life. Again, it was designed to be an object lesson for Hosea's ministry to Israel to show Israel how deep, how unchanging God's love is for his people. This is critical we understand this. So think about the fact, again, uh, it's just important. God is commanding Hosea to do this, but why? Why doesn't God just tell Hosea, hey, just go and leave her, go find a new bride? I mean, if she's been such an unfaithful whore, why wouldn't God just tell Hosea to replace her? I'm going to quote from two other prophets again so you can see the unity that we find in God's promises. First, and I mentioned this, uh, what Moses said so long ago from Deuteronomy 4.30. Again, he said this before Hosea was born. Speaking to Israel, when you are in tribulation and all these things come to you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. It's a promise. And then this from Moses in Deuteronomy 31.6. The Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And if these words sound familiar, it's because we see them also in Hebrews 13.5. He himself has said, I will never 
desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And I think, I could be wrong, but when God uses the word never, he means never. Just a, just a clue. And then this from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 54. Listen to this. For the, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And that is the overarching theme of Hosea. The prophets agreed with each other, you see. It wasn't just Hosea saying this. Why did they agree with each other? Because they were all inspired by the same holy God, the the holy, trustworthy creator God. And by the way, Regarding this institution of marriage that we see outlined uniquely in Hosea, Christ happened to agree. He said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So here's an important point. He hasn't replaced Israel with the church. God will redeem his bride Israel because he's a God who keeps his promises. And so I have to stop there. We're about out of time, but... um, I hope that's helpful. I hope you see the main theme because a lot of people, like I say, can get caught up in all the language of harlotry and whoredom, but God keeps his promises. He will redeem his bride, Israel. And that's where we're going to stop now in the book of Hosea. And next week, I believe Kerry Wilson is going to teach on our next minor prophet, uh, the prophet Joel. So come back for that. And we'll see you back here um, a little bit later and we'll worship God. So you're dismissed.